Hello and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. This week we're discussing Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film, Licorice Pizza, which was roundly spurned by the Oscars this week, but is nonetheless an energetic and uplifting tale of an eccentric romance set against the backdrop of 70s LA. I'm Marsh Davis. I'm a mere film peasant, tilling the frigid filmic fields for turnips whilst nursing a goiter the size of a pineapple. I don't actually know what either of those two things mean in the context of this metaphor, but I do know that I'm joined on this cinematic journey by an almighty television king, a screenwriter, and lordship, Jamie Britton. Good evening, my liege. <laughs> Good evening. Dance for me, fool. Dance. <laughs> so the, the Oscars have, have been and gone. Uh, nary a nod, I think, at all for Licorice Pizza. I mean, they were, he was nominated in several categories, but didn't didn't get anything, I think. Is that part of the course for a ceremony as idiotic as the Oscars? How do you how do you feel about them generally? Yeah, it's it's a weird one, isn't it? I I mean, I used to, and when I say used to, I mean in the 90s, stay up and watch them and really enjoy it. Um, I particularly enjoyed it when Billy Crystal would do some funny skits where he put mm. himself into uh, some of the movies through uh, movie making magic, like having uh, Leonardo DiCaprio spit on his face in Titanic. Uh, that was quite funny. <laughs> um, but uh, recently, um, it's just, I don't know, it's hard to care about awards, I think. Um, they seem pretty arbitrary, more so, I think, with the Oscars, you know, like removing a bunch of the categories from the broadcast and, you know, having a sort of audience award. I mean, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. In theory, it's just kind of, it makes a kind of facile ceremony seem even more facile when they're just sort of trying to bend it to the changing world, just kind of haphazardly, um, you know, and and, Mm. and the fact that they can't get basic stuff right, like, you know, having the right winners in the envelopes (laughs) and things like that, um, or, you know, failing to remove an individual who has, uh, you know, slapped another individual for reasons, you know, I mean, again... I mean, that is a pretty unique situation to find oneself in, but it does seem a little bit kind of, you know, <laughs> like, oh, just weird. It's just Hollywood's weird. It's a weird place. It's a weird kind of, everything about it is so strange. And celebrities, I was saying this on the Great and Crowbar Discord the other day, like, there's such a minority in our in in the wide span of existence, and yet they take up so much space. Um in our minds and our kind of conversations when you would never use a celebrity in a study about anything, would you? Because their results <laughs> would be so skewed because they're, so, they're such an insane, like semiotic nightmare. Um, <laughs> you know, you could never actually, you can't draw anything from a celebrity because no. as the uh, new metal band tool uh, said on the song hooker with a penis, you know, all you know about me is what I've sold you, which I always Ooh. thought was uh you know, a, a real truism there. So yeah, it's 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 <laughs> it's a weird one with the Oscars. I kind of don't care about them, even when like you know people who are in skins win them, which is you know is is cool. Um, but it's also kind of just like what a mad, crazy world we live in, where this is some sort of marker of quality because it isn't really. There's often very bad movies winning these awards. I mean, yeah. what was it? Yeah, with that stupid um like rubbish, like make boomers feel ba- better about their racism movie. Um, I don't know. One? Did Clint Eastwood direct it? <laughs> no, it's one of the Farrelly brothers directed it. Oh, right. It was with Viggo Mortensen and... Oh, Green uh, Book. Green Book, yeah. Green Book. That won Best Picture. 
Yeah, I haven't seen it actually, but I do know it from the 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 meme where um, uh, it, it somebody says, "You know, this is pathetic, right?" And it's uh, it's a very good meme. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's my feeling about the Oscars. Since you ask, <laughs> I mean it's interesting because uh, you know, Hollywood being such a demented place is obviously <laughs> quite pertinent for uh, the film we're about to discuss, which sort of intersects with Hollywood of a different era, but with just as many wild and deranged egos in the mix. Um, but uh, what do you think of the kind of suggestion that, that the Oscars or award ceremonies in general should mimic basically the box office? Do you think that that they've become too kind of uh, enamoured with? Hollywood's own sort of self mythologizing that they should just celebrate populism. Yeah, I don't know. There's that great onion headline about a mirror on the stage being given an 11 minute standing ovation. Um, uh, yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I think, I think it's so tricky is that as, as movies become increasingly less relevant, as we were talking about on our 50 top films list and, and, and I don't know. I don't know what they're supposed to do, really. Like, clearly they should be doing something. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't quite know what that might be because movies are becoming less relevant. And cult- the cultural conversation is so much fuller these days. You know, there's so many more voices in the mix and people on social media. And I think that's generally a good thing that, like, people who aren't the theatre, you know, they're not the theatre, the film critic for variety get to have an opinion about stuff. I think that's a good thing, actually, um, even though it's annihilated movie criticism as an art form. But still, I think it's mostly good <laughs> because it's opened up the conversation. But I don't know how the Oscars are supposed to respond to that, hmm. um, you, you know, and, and clearly they're not doing a great job of of, of doing it. Although, you know, the, the most recent ceremony did, <laughs> it, it certainly made headlines. <laughs> it's hmm. dominated the conversation for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) Do you feel like uh, Licorice Pizza in particular deserved, maybe not an Oscar, but some sort of shiny award-shaped recognition? How do you feel about the film overall, good or bad? I thought it was amazing. I mean, every time I see a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I go into it thinking, all right, this will be the one that I kind of, that leaves me cold, or this will be the one where I can't quite understand what the fuss is about. And (laughs) every single time I see them, Within about five minutes, I'm like, oh no, he's he's it's amazing, he's done it again. The guy <laughs> is incapable of making a boring movie. You know, I, I mean, maybe Inherent Vice, which isn't a boring, it's a very hard movie to love or enjoy even. Um, I came out of that one feeling completely stoned out of my head and I haven't smoked <laughs> weed since 2003. But like, you know, it really... Anyway, I, lo- I loved the book anyway. So when it, that was announced, I was very excited. And it, it, it's a perfect adaptation of the book. Really weird. But like, that's probably his most hard to love movie. And I still loved it in a way. And Licorice Pizza might be his easiest to love movie that he's made. Um, and it's I also one of his that too. Kind of, it's a really good hearted film, isn't it? I mean, it's... Uh, I, I mean, it probably I don't know if it would rank it as one of my favourite of his films, but uh, the more and more I've sat with it and thought about it, the more I like it. <laughs> so maybe, maybe this time next week it will be my favourite. I don't know. Uh, but it's um, just to kind of give uh, give the synopsis of it. Obviously, anybody who's listening to this should probably watch it before getting into this podcast because we'll probably spoil some of stuff. Um, but uh, it's sort of a rambling romantic farce, I think you'd, you maybe describe it as that in as much as it forms to conforms to any particular genre um but it charts this sort of unusual 
pseudo-adolescent push-and-pull relationship uh, between these two quite eccentric youngsters, uh, one of whom is Gary, who's a precocious child actor of 15, but who has all these kind of hustles uh, that suggest that he has a, uh, a business mind beyond his years. Um, and uh, Alana, who's uh, an entertainingly volatile 25-year-old <laughs> who uh, still lives with her parents and hasn't quite found her place in the adult world. And their sort of attraction, their repulsion, their friendship, their business schemes, jealousies, and all their aspirations and failures and so on, they all takes place with the backdrop of um, 70s LA and specifically the San Fernando Valley, uh, which gives it a sort of quite a niche and intimate slice of history uh, which, in which things like, you know, a petrol shortage and an unsuccessful mayoral candidacy uh, take center stage um, rather than kind of the, the big um, the big movements of history. And throughout this, throughout the film, like Hollywood maniacs <laughs> periodically plow through it in these disruptive bit parts um, high on their own ego and presumably a cocktail of other things. Um, but like, I, I think... I, as I, if if we're going to draw comparisons with Paul Thomas Anderson's other films, I'd say like the end points in a lot of his films resemble the end points of other more familiar story arcs, but the stuff in between has this much more chaotic cadence. Uh, there's like these smaller, stranger meanings and like digressions and these narrative cul-de-sacs. The story then immediately has to reverse out of sometimes in a literal way in this film, <laughs> and. I just love it. I mean, I, this is one of the things that I think all his films do for me is that they always surprise me, not so much in that kind of ultimate destination, but the journey of them. Yes. He just seems incapable of being boring. And I, I totally agree with you on that point as well, that like there's there's like five other movies just taking place slightly, you know, to the left and right of this movie. Um which I just love. I mean, like at the end, you know, in the sort of final sequence and the sort of last last uh, warning for spoilers, even though it's not really a film you can spoil, it's so kind of, you know, uh, wishy-washy with its plotting. But like the, um, you know, the city councilman, the the gay guy, and she, she's turned up at that restaurant and, and she realises that, you know, she's just there to pretend to be this guy's girlfriend. And like, there's a whole other movie with those guys, you know. They're basically yeah. they're basically in the movie Milk, you know. It's like that's all taking place there, and she's just kind of passing through it. But it feels so real and so alive. And those characters, you know. You, I mean, I thought we were going for a thing with that guy of who's going to be a sex pest or something like that. And no, he's a completely very very human person, like pretty much everyone in the movie. And then the stuff with, um, uh, you know, obviously with Sean Penn and Bradley Cooper playing, mm. you know, um, basically William Holden uh, and Bradley Cooper as, as a real person who was this dude who dated Barbra Streisand. Like, all that stuff is is a f- movie's worth of character uh, and plot uh, kind of potential, but we just pass through it in this wonderfully asymmetrical way. Mm. It's just like, it's funny how much people talk about, I mean, I've mentioned this before in this pod, but like, structure... Uh, and story structure as being this kind of key to unlock, you know, screenwriting and movie making. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a big one for structure. Whenever I write a script for anything, really, I, I put down a kind of basic, you know, a, a sort of act structure because it makes it easier. But the thing is, is 
I think that's the issue is that it makes it easier, but it doesn't necessarily make it better to do it that way. And there's this whole kind of discourse mm. these days about, you know, basically there's something fundamental about story structure, which I guess is basically true. But the fact of that means that you should always hew to it because a mark of quality is 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 kind of movies that do that, which again is just clearly untrue. Um, movies are good or bad, depending on lots of factors. But I love about Paul Thomas Anderson's movies in particular it just how much they just completely piss all over that notion, you know, <laughs> this movie struck, you know, cause it's, you're so often, I think everyone feels this way. If you have any kind of interest in movies or anything at all, really, where you're so like, okay, here's a bit where it seems to be going well, it's going to go bad for a bit. Then it's going to get a little bit better. Then it's going to get really bad. And then it'll get a little bit better at the end. And this movie completely explodes <laughs> that kind of basic structure um, of a kind of romance movie by doing all those things in completely different orders while still ultimately drawing the same larger arc. So, you know, he's not trying to reinvent the wheel, but he's just telling this story in in kind of such weird rhythms, which end up being incredibly seductive and not at all disorientating. You know, he drifts into a long, dark night of driving a lorry around um, with just... It's just the word that always comes to me with Pil Sanders. It's just completely effortless and it feels like real life. It feels like your childhood. It feels like the escapades you go on for reasons which are slightly obscure to you and then just kind of end up taking you over for that period of time rather than a movie which often wants to make things neat and ordered and, you know, and worries. Our movie's often very anxious to get to the next thing because it's terrified its audience are going to be bored. But Paul Thomas Anderson obviously has this insane level of confidence and competence in in you know allowing uh, mm. allowing that discomfort to be a to be a a risk you know <laughs> um, yeah I mean you, you you have to trust him a lot I think uh, but I do by now so <laughs> I think it's interesting one of the um, uh, the sort of touchstones for this film he said in interviews was uh, American Graffiti. Uh, which he describes specifically, one of the things about it he was trying to uh, emulate was that it's both loose and incredibly tight, was the phrase he uses. And I think that's a sort of, I mean, that feels very right. I mean, it's a sort of paradox that goes to the heart of a lot of his films, I think, where you have this kind of willingness to meander and to dwell on things that are that are seemingly trivial in the larger context of the story arc, um, but never feel like baggy or boring, even when it isn't feeling, it never feels hurried either. Uh, and yet, even while it's happy to spend time on a on a diversion, which takes up multiple scenes, it's also then happy to cut abruptly between, you know, distant points in time in a way which is extremely lively. Like it doesn't feel bound to present uh, the, 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 the passing of time in a uniform way. And it, it just focuses on what's, you know what it's interested in and then moves on the second it loses that interest uh, and it feels incredibly curated in that way as well as also preserving a sort of randomish <laughs> cadence which feels quite real and I, I i guess i guess you just need a lot of trust uh, in paul thomas anderson that he's chosen things that are worth showing so that when the pace slows down and he allows the scene to play out with like lots of space i'm never bored by it because i know it's going to be worth it and i think like an example of that it would be like the film spends multiple scenes describing this escapade involving uh, Gary's exploits as a child actor. And those, those, those exploits ultimately don't really contribute to anything in the story's <laughs> conclusion. 
but we spend a lot of time with them. And then we get this lurching manic set of events told with extreme abruptness where Gary walks into a store, he's a mesmerized by a waterbed. And the next scene, he's trying to sell waterbeds at a teen fair of some sort. I, didn't, I don't know what that is. Then he immediately gets arrested for murder by mistake. <laughs> and it's like those things should feel, I mean, they do feel kind of like a, a jarring sequence of non sequiturs, but somehow it knits it all together. I don't quite know. <laughs> Ow. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it is it is miraculous in a way. It's kind of as weird as real life can be sometimes. I mean, I was thinking it's almost like, it almost puts me in mind of like a, a moth around a light bulb, you know. It's always going to go towards that light bulb, but it's going to do it in a different way every single time, you know. And <laughs> that's the kind of weird rhythm of licorice pizza is you're sort of bouncing these two people off each other without mm. any real, you know, sort of... Um, I, you know, sort of, you know, received idea of, of how, how that might happen. Uh, and they literally bounce off each other a few times in this movie. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's great. It's, um, it's uh, really, really interesting on that level. And I do think it has a sensuous kind of sexiness to it, which is, is really unusual, but also really lovely just to enjoy, you know, it just mm-hmm. takes you back to your own childhood Um you know, no matter what that was, I think, because the feelings feel all so, so true. <laughs> I, I do like that it's just not afraid to have a scene that lasts like five or 10 seconds, if necessary. I think what, like there's one of my favorite moments in the film is just after a big blow up with her family, Alana is smoking weed with her sister outside. And there's just this couple of moments of silence as they, they toke on the, on, the, on the doobie. And then her sister says something like, you've got to stop fighting with everyone all the time. And Alana just says, "Oh fuck off, Danielle!" and storms off, and that's it. You know, the scene. Yeah, ends. I was gonna, I was gonna mention that exact same scene. I love that. It's crazy. Oh, it's, it's just, oh, it's, I, there's something about it. The switch in temperament, the abruptness of the whole scene, the way it's, it's just. No, she she doesn't really have any kind of kind of uh, realization or closure on on what has just happened with the family. It's just immediate anger. It's just very funny. I do, it's maybe interesting to sort of compare. The sort of style and the pace of this film to um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, Quentin Tarantino's film, because it, I feel like Tarantino and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson share uh, a sort of digressionary and idiosyncratic sort of bent in their films generally. And obviously both of uh, Licorice Pizza and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are saturated to one degree or another with like Hollywood myth of a particular area. Um but I feel like the big difference between Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson, I'm, I'm saying his full name each time because I don't actually know which one of his names is his surname, <laughs> whether it's <laughs> Thomas Anderson or whether it's just Anderson. Anyway, um, PTA, PTA knows how to re- <laughs> <laughs> he knows how to reduce his films, like or his editor does, and and he accedes to it. I don't know to what extent. I mean, I think he's pretty heavily involved in the editing as well. But like, I, I read this interview with. Um, Licorice Pizza's editor, Andy Jurgensen, about how they assembled. There's a particular scene in um, a bar called Tale of the Cock, uh, which is this kind of incredibly complex thing when you think about it. It has a lot of moving parts. Um, and in the end, it doesn't feel that way. It feels quite kind of fluid. But you have Gary and Alana arriving at this place in separate kind of rival groups. Gary's sort of got his own thing going on, and he, but he's also making kind of jealous eyes at Alana, who's meeting this Hollywood smoothie played by Sean Penn. 
And then you have the whole thing between Lana and the smoothie. And then you also have fucking Tom Waits turning up, carousing and and sort of giving this incredibly long spiel to the entire room. And apparently that was the way that was written and the way it was filmed it ended up being very complicated because you have so many different things interacting with each other at the same time and it could easily have ended up such that those parts would compete with another with, with each other and it wouldn't feel coherent but from this interview it seems like what they did was they threw out most of the scene they pared it right down and they sort of teased out these different parts and pulled them further away from each other to allow them to work kind of more succinctly by themselves and and you know i think the idea of binning a, a scene's worth of dialogue. I don't think Tarantino has ever binned a single line of dialogue, no matter how bad it was. Um, and his films, which I still enjoy, incidentally, but they are these incredibly massive, sort of overripe, indulgent things. And while it's sort of clear that, you know, there's a genius which is being indulged, it nonetheless makes for pretty swollen and unnecessary uh, films, I think, in some ways. Um, and you just don't get that with Paul Thomas Anderson. I think that's the thing. Even at his most erratic, the, the bitty bits have this kind of lightness to them where they deliver something. And even that 10-second scene where Alana says, oh, fuck off, Danielle, you know, that's an aside. But it is also refracting uh, some element of her relationship with uh, with Gary. And that's the thing that sort of runs through the entire film. No matter where they end up, no matter what kind of diversion they end up in, their relationship is still kind of running through it. You know, everything reflects back on their sort of competition and desire and repulsion uh, for each other. Yes. I mean, I have to confess that I didn't finish Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I found it pretty tiresome and and gave up on it. Um, I think maybe the moment I gave up on it is an early scene where Brad Pitt's character drives through Hollywood, uh, which has been meticulously and extraordinarily expensively uh, recreated uh, just for the scene where he's just going to sort of drive past it. Um, I mean, extraordinary on, in many ways. But I think, you know, the similar stuff in this movie, which is just so more, so much more alive, you know. You know, it's it, it's so less, so much, you know, less of a smothering of postmodern irony and more of a just sense of heart and soul, I think. Um, and the detailing is, is just as obsessive. Um, but again, it's it's he doesn't he doesn't fetishize it in the same way that Tarantino does. He mm. he kind of he embraces it as a, as a kind of a backdrop for his characters, um, whilst not making it you know a particularly fetishistic movie about the seventies. Although I guess it isn't in a funny way. But again, it seems it's it, it's as seen through uh, you know the eyes of teenagers and and young you know young women rather yeah. than rather than like a kind of you know, whatever the fuck Tarantino sees the world through. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess it's the difference between, like, reminiscence and fandom, uh, m- maybe. I mean, certainly there's a sort of reverence and kind of uh, a nerdish encyclopedic knowledge uh, for Hollywood, which Tarantino's eager to convey. Well, Whereas... it's funny, isn't it, because um, Fiona Apple, who used to date uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, recently spoke about what stopped her from taking cocaine was a night spent at um, Tarantino's house with PTA, where they were all taking lots of cocaine and watching movies, and that does sound that does sound like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would maybe we should talk about the uh, the two protagonists because obviously they are they are the center of the film. Um, a terrific uh, pair of uh, actors, um, both new to acting. Um, 
both slightly misshapen in terms of uh, what you might expect as the Hollywood norm, by which I mean they're perfectly normal looking human beings. Um, Gary's played by Cooper Hoffman, and he has this sort of this quality of not yet like having grown into his own body in that sort of slightly unheimlich way that kids have. And yet he has this incredible confidence to him, this incredible charm to him, which is sort of precocious and fragile, but he's also genuinely kind of affable uh, in a way which makes him much easier to empathize with uh, than, I don't know, might be the case with other child stars, let's say. He's not brattish. He doesn't come across as brattish. Um, and he's and then not, you've got, he's, he's not um, uh, you know, uh, oh God, the name's escaping me, Matt Broderick's character. He's not Ferris Bueller, you know, mm. he doesn't he doesn't glide through the world. He sort of seems to when you first meet him, but then he instantly <laughs> kind of bumps into stuff and constantly sort of bumps into stuff. Um, yeah. And then you've got uh, Alana, played by a, a real-life Alana, uh, Alana Hyam of the band Hyam, uh, who um, I think is just utterly amazing in this first role. Uh, she uh, She's older, obviously, her character is 25, but she still has that sort of amorphous, awkward quality. She hasn't found a place. She's furious about it. Um, and it, interesting, I, 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 as I was reading about the, um, uh, about the making of this film, um, and I think this is important because it comes through the, the sort of the, the in, into the kind of feeling you get when you come away from this film. But apparently, uh, Alana Hyam's mother taught Paul Thomas Anderson as a, as an eight year old. Uh, she was his art teacher, and then later, uh, years later, when like the band Hyam is starting to kind of uh, propose a collaboration with Paul Thomas Anderson, so he could film some of their their music videos. Um, they weren't sure whether to bring this up, and Paul Thomas Anderson didn't realize, but when they did uh, uh, point out there was this connection, he immediately runs off to his bedroom and pulls out this painting that he made with uh, Alana Hyam's mother. Uh, and apparently, you know, he's kept this all these years, and he, she had this huge impact on him as a teacher, <laughs> uh, which is just enormously sweet, you know. It's just, yeah. and then, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson eventually ropes uh, Alana into babysitting um, Cooper Hoffman <laughs> um, years before the film gets made. So it really is this film of friends of friends, and there's this a real warmness and intimacy to it all that I think just shines through the whole thing yes and the casting of her entire family <laughs> uh, really works for that um uh but yes I think you know the fact that she this is her sort of movie debut um that she never really acted before and that he wrote the part for her it's just a little bit of, of cinematic magic her, her part um because her her route through the movie is uh, you know pretty obscure um, compared to you know lots of sort of coming of age stories, as is Cooper's really, it it doesn't it doesn't draw a really kind of standard arc across arc across the movie as to where she's going or who she is. It just allows us to be in the moment with her and to see that she and he are both people, you know, kind of in a process, you know, kind of on their way elsewhere, really. Um, and I think that his kind of casting of of her. Uh, and the casting of Cooper Hoffman, which apparently was done, you know, very late in the process, um, when they couldn't find anyone who had a kind of, you know, um, naturalism to him that he was kind of looking for, um, and that, yeah, that really serves the movie. It really kind of makes you feel in uh, feel the inconsistency of of real life rather than feeling like you're just in a, you know, a standard 
blah blah romantic comedy. Hmm. I think there's, I mean, it's interesting that uh, there's quite a few Paul Thomas Anderson films which have that sort of central, almost like a tug of war relationship between two poles. I, I mean, well, I hmm. Phantom Thread has two of those, actually, doesn't it? Because Daniel Day-Lewis's character has this sort of passive-aggressive war for dominance with both his sister and also his lover separately. But, um, oh, that's such a good film. Just such brilliant, studied scenes of just incredible priggishness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but, um, and the, the, then the master has uh, that sort of teacher-pupil relationship that turns into something more obsessive and kind of chaotic. But, like... Licorice Pizza has this sort of really vibrant and volatile, competitive and adoring sort of back and forth friendship between the two leads, and that's that sort of makes the film like where they're, wherever they're going, there's always that kind of that kind of tug of war. They're always being attracted or repelled back and forth into one another's orbits and out of them again, and they're like infuriated at, with each other at times. And this sort of this competition to be more superior, to be kind of more adult than one another, or or in Gary's case, to be as adult as Alana, because he's trying to act older than he is in order to kind of match Alana's perceived desire for maturity. And then Alana is also kind of she doesn't really, you know. She wants she she doesn't really want to be hanging around with a fifteen year old at, in some part of her mind, and she's she's naturally inclined to kind of assert like the superiority because of her age, but without always earning it. And uh, this, I, I'm really interested in what you think about this this arc where she goes off to work for a mayoral candidate, and then she's kind of snooty about Gary's trivial kind of grifting business plans. But I wonder if she's working for the mayor sort of as much out of like an aspiration to prove that she's an adult as out of any real political conviction <laughs> um, and coupled with a bit of horniness for the mayor himself, which then proves wonderfully misplaced. Yes. It's uh yeah. She literally just looks at his poster. It's a great, it's a great moment. Um, I don't, yeah, it's again, to me, it's funny because I read a couple of reviews of this movie, which said that, you know, one of the things they didn't like about it is that Alana lacks agency as a character, that she's she's too enthralled to the kind of affections of other people and doesn't determine her journey, you know, herself enough. And for me, I think, again, it feels... The movie gets away with that because it feels enclosed in such a small space in a funny kind of way it's so of its time and of its year you know what is it 1973 the whole movie takes place in and so although i i agree that like her motivation to go off and work on that political campaign it kind of, it feels it, it it's never quite clarified you know what she's trying to do there or what she's trying to find there just that she's trying to find something and so <clears throat> For me, I think that last movement with her, which is eventually going to drive her back into the arms of Cooper, again, it's kind of conventional in a way, but actually that aimlessness works for it. (laughs) I mean, it was funny. I was interested by some of the discussion about this film talking about the inappropriateness of their relationship. And I was actually surprised that some people found the movie to be kind of, you know, inappropriate or their relationship to be, you know, something that, you know, shouldn't have been portrayed with with the kind of ease that it is. But I found that quite a surprising discussion because the movie makes so much of it. it it's, it's on it's on the table of the discussion constantly throughout. 
um, you know, the differences in age and what that means, what that means for your coolness, what that means for your sexuality, you know, what that means for your place in the world, which feels so true to kind of, you know, the way you feel when you're 15 and the way you feel when you're 25. Um, And it's done with such earnestness that it just isn't a problem for me, for me watching the movie. Yeah, I think it's the the charting that that um, rise from adolescence, where you, you know Gary is desperate to be seen as an adult, and Alana, who is now an adult but still hasn't seemingly achieved any of this kind of certainty or sureness about her place in the world, which adultness, uh, adulthood should bring, and then then you realize that all of the actual adults in this film are completely deplorable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that actually adulthood doesn't bring with it any kind of wisdom or maturity, really. And, you know, the way, even the way that the other adults in this film perceive the, the two kids at its center, they're always way, way off on their judgment. <laughs> like, you know, the talent scout describing Alana as a pit bull or, uh, or you know, Bradley Cooper's completely unhinged turn as as john peters or uh, uh, sean says, penn and, you know, and tom waits uh, sword fighting with spoons which i think they do at one point <laughs> right yeah and then you know gary and alana are so anxious to be perceived as grown-ups that they have really no idea how clueless grown-ups actually are <laughs> yeah uh also in terms of just uh not especially relevant to this point but uh, you know a, a grown-up relationship with a kid you know a shout out to alana's father played by her actual father who delivers one of the funniest what the fucks <laughs> that I've ever heard in the cinema. Just uh, a delightful moment. Yeah. But I think there's just the, the the back and forth jealousy between the two characters is sort of the the, the engine of this film. And it, the, the, there are a couple of scenes where that really shines. One is this sort of this flip between Gary uh, kind of glibly flirting with an air hostess and then being just incredibly ungraciously irked when Lance smooth talks uh, Alana. And then, uh, then another later scene where Gary is like patronizingly schooling Alana on how to be more sexy uh, while she's on a, uh, a telesales call to try and sell these waterbeds. And then she intentionally goes, you know, full sexy while he seethes <laughs> jealously in the background. Are <laughs> uh, just delicious, delicious uh, scenes of kind of minor passive aggressive conflict. Which it seems to be Paul Thomas Anderson's expertise. <laughs> yes, I mean that's basically all the uh, all the uh, uh, um, Phantom Fred was. So yes, it's kind <laughs> yeah. of a, uh, interesting in comparison to that. that. That's a movie that you know um, Daniel Day Lewis said he had to retire from acting because it made him so sad to make. <laughs> and, oh, really? Yes, he said that. I mean, he's oh. obviously he's done that before, but he did he did seem to mean it this time. Um, yeah, I think we should talk about some of the, the the side roles and the cameos because these sort of, I mean, the, the film is so much uh, a, a smattering of different events that actually going seeing it through these different kind of cameos is is maybe a more useful way of looking at it than a than a chronological uh, look at the film. But I thought we could start with the um, the role of uh, John Michael Higgins as Jerry because as well as the um, <laughs> The sort of dubiousness of uh, the relationship between an, uh, <clears throat> an adult woman and a and a uh, teenage boy. This the scenes with John Michael Higgins also inspired quite a bit of kind of pushback on the film um, because Jerry, who uh, who's played by John Michael Higgins, owns this uh, Japanese restaurant. Uh, he has uh, Japanese wives. But when he talks to them, he does this uh, incredibly brazenly racist 
weird, exaggerated Japanese stereotype, speaking English, but with a, a kind of incredibly um, over-the-top Japanese accent. Um, and later it's revealed he doesn't actually speak Japanese at all and has no idea what his wives are saying to him. Um, wives, plural, because he gets rid of one uh, in, <laughs> and then just replaces her. Um, and obviously this is troubling. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it's meant to be. Um, and I think I think the, it's interesting. I mean, like I, 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 I'm really keen to get your take on this because I feel uncomfortable about it. The, the reactions to it, which which out out outright say that it, the film is mocking Asian accents, they seem obviously wrong to me. Like the the joke is obviously, I think that the man is casually appalling, and that the social mores of the time that make this permissible are also appalling, and they do not hold into account at all for it. Um, and in fact, like everything is about that setup is is humiliating to the wife and patronizing of her culture. Uh, the, the, I mean, he even takes you know credit for the authenticity of the cuisine because he lived in Japan for a bit, even though he doesn't speak Japanese. You know, um, and it strikes me that as something that might have been witnessed as well. Like that, there's a sort of a quality of um, anecdote to it. Um, and it's obviously emblematic of the accepted racism of the time and also the absurdity of that racism. And I think you can see it as a criticism alongside the sort of other farcical abuses of power employed by the the police, you know, even, you know, who arrest Gary out of nowhere and then just dump him <laughs> free when it's clear they made a mistake or like the sexist groping that Alana receives or, you know, even the talent scouts comments about how Jewish noses are really big now in Hollywood. And all this stuff is... Is, is sort of funny, but it is definitely intended to be sickening and absurd. But having given all those caveats, I don't think any of any of those other scenes which uh, show uh, the, the troubling side of 1970s culture are quite so bravado in their silliness as the scene with, with John Michael Higgins. It definitely occurs on this different register and I also wonder if, you know, maybe it's just unhelpful <laughs> to have have a joke like that, even if it is at the expense of a racist, when audiences won't understand it, when the, that racism can be reappropriated and parroted, shorn of the satirical context, or simply just because, you know, Asians struggle for roles in films. And uh, this is a time of high anti-Asian -raci anti, um, racism. Um, I don't know. I found it funny in the moment, but then... You know, in as much as you can analyze why you laughed at something after the fact, I I feel like I was laughing at Jerry's, you know, grotesquerie. But then I, I since I've since heard like just anecdotes of, you know, Asian uh, audience members sitting in, in amid um, a chuckling crowd of uh, of white cinema goers whilst they felt distinctly chilled by what they saw on screen, and that sort of made me reassess about whether it was a joke that landed well or landed yeah. as intended. Yes, I tend to agree with all of that. And it's very hard to read those accounts from Asian people saying, you know, that they really enjoyed the movie and then there's just that moment and they just sort of think, like, oh, you know, thanks. <laughs> it's just like, this had to be here, did it? I think it also doesn't help that it's John Michael Higgins, who is a really, really funny actor. <laughs> One of the funniest mm. men on earth, probably. And, and properly leans into that moment, you know, in in the way that he always does. Um, and it's and it does feel a little bit, uh, you know, it's the most brazenly capital C comic moment in the whole movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, did it have to be the racially charged moment, you know, because it's not a film that really 
gives a shit about that uh, otherwise, you know. And it's a very white movie too. And PTA's point that it's, you know, it's all just kind of period uh, appropriate and period specific is, it's all right. It's, it's, you know, it's an okay, I understand where he's coming from on that count, but, you know, I think you just have to be careful. You have to be careful with your, you know, with the audiences that are going to come and see your movie and how they're going to feel at particularly stuff like this, particularly when it comes down to history, because, you know, people get treated this way and people remember being treated that way. And mm. it's a responsibility to keep that in mind, I think. I think it's the movie's only slight misstep, really, because I think generally it's got a, a lovely heart to it. I just think it's in the in the performance of that moment. It's just it's just a little bit too big. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, I'd like to just mention the the appearance of Skylar Gizondo. I think, or maybe Gizondo. I don't know how to pronounce his his last name as uh, as Lance. Uh, um, I I just recently seen the. Um, uh, the Righteous Gemstones, in which he has a, a starring role. But he apparently is a, a former child actor himself um, who starred uh, in Psych as the younger version of Sean, if you're a fan uh, of Psych. Yes, yes. Uh, no, I did watch that. That's but, good. Uh, but yeah, he's he's very good as a sort of uh, lugubrious and <laughs> overly confident uh, child actor. Of, of uh, Yeah, of the kind of um, Ferris Bueller mold rather than the Gary mold, I think. It's, it's important. That he's he has this uh, different quality to him as a, a slightly brattish, slightly too smooth. Uh, yes, although also really likable. <laughs> like yeah. You don't you don't hate him. Yes, yeah. it's, it's it's funny you should, but you don't. <laughs> Did you spot John C. Riley as a, a one line in, cameo? Inst- instantly, <laughs> it's the <laughs> yeah. easiest to spot cameo in the world because it's John C. Riley. <laughs> it's oh, that's John C. Riley. <laughs> Um, also, yes. There's also another scene um, uh, with with Harriet Sanson Harris as a town oh scout. Oh my god, that actress! She, uh, yeah, such an actress, actor. I just love her so much. She's always amazing in everything she's ever done. Like, uh, I mean, as Fraser's agent, BB, she was mm. just spectacular. They bring her in once a series, and she was always completely incredible. Is that one? It's <laughs> that one episode that just has the amazing ending line where it, it, it turns out that she might have murdered a parrot in order to save <laughs> Fraser's career. And he says to her, the last line of the episode, he says, is, Baby, is there any chance you didn't kill that parrot? And she goes, oh, darling, there's always a chance. <laughs> <laughs> really great. And she's in um, she's in uh, Phantom Fred as well. Um, is she? Who is she playing Phantom she Fred? She plays in Phantom Fred. She plays the kind of old crazy woman who... Uh, Towards the end of the movie, uh, Day Lewis makes another dress for. Oh and yes, like, and she's getting married, um, and it's all very uncomfortable and weird. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that, that scene is brilliant for her performance as well. That weird phone call where she just <laughs> says no a large number of times, then laughs, and then says, "Love to Tatum." Love to Tatum, it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, one of the other thing about that scene is I love how the Gary's advice just to say yes. Uh, keeps on kind of these the stakes for that keep on getting like, higher and higher like alana's claiming now she can do archery and horseback riding but th- then those things keep on coming back there's callbacks to that throughout where she's just like oh yes yeah i can definitely do that <laughs> it's uh but it but it never quite manages to get her in a fix which is uh which is which is amusing there's like the tension but none of the kind of the payoff I yeah i mean it's, it's actually to a point that the movie is almost devoid of anxiety which I really appreciate, mm. you know, lots of, 
movies, well, particularly, particularly those about you know uh, teenage years and 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 stuff like that, are often fraught with anxiety. And this is a movie that's almost completely devoid of it. There um, are there are a couple of moments which are, are genuinely unexpectedly heart in mouth. <laughs> uh, the, the downhill. Uh, um, backwards driving of the truck I found to be genuinely uh, nerve-wracking <laughs> um, and then there's uh, there's there's Sean Penn's motorbike stunt as well yes um, but these are both moments of physical danger and physical anxiety rather than emotional yeah, which true. I think is, is is his trick there is that he uses the inertia of, of going down a hill or falling off the back of a bike as his as his motor <laughs> rather than you know the fear of being stood up or the fear of being humiliated all of both of which are things that happen in this movie but they're just they're they the characters are in their own ways immune to it <laughs> in in a in a kind of bizarre way i mean the scene the scene where you know alana finally shows cooper her boobs is just is just glorious for its kind of, you know, exuberant sense of fun and silliness, um, uh, you know, uh, rather than being, you know, a kind of what it might be in another film, which would be like erotically charged or over the top or, you know, um, you know, which I just, I just appreciate as an anxious person. I just appreciate <laughs> a lack of these things in movies, you know. Well, the tension is diffused by a hearty slap across the face, which is uh, is a useful way of getting out of the of the, the emotional difficulty of that scene. Absolutely, and I love the scene later where there she passes out next to him, and he he puts his hand over her boob but doesn't touch it, uh, and and sort of goes back to lying down again. And I just I, I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> He's learned a lesson. He has learned a lesson, <laughs> and thus grown as a character. <laughs> Sean Penn plays Jack Holden, who is apparently based on an actor called William Holden, who uh, was big in the fifties. Was not a name that was uh, familiar to me. Did are you familiar with the uh, the legend of William Holden, such as it might be? Oh well, I mean, I mean, as a as an actor, he's one of my favourites. I mean, he's the lead in um, Network. You know, he's the guy who shouts, uh, "I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore." Is he? Yeah, no, he's not. That's Peter Finch who plays him, right. and then William Holden is the <laughs> is the other guy, the um, the kind of producer who's around him, uh, and he's also in the Wild Bunch. He's the lead in the Wild Bunch. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, so he's he's someone I know as an actor, but not someone I know as a personality. But kind of clicking around about him after watching this movie, you know, he was kind of deeply crazy. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Sean Penn's performance here is absolutely immaculate. Like he's such a good actor. It's a shame he's a real prick. Yeah. <laughs> but but like just ah, oh, just this Jack Holden. I assume it is like a, a composite to some extent. But it's just this self mythologizing smoothie, who you know is sort of obviously in hock to his own pr to some extent and he's mixing like lines of films in with his own kind of uh <laughs> myth of himself as he attempts to woo alana with like, this casual mention about how he saw two of his black friends beheaded in the jungle <laughs> don't ask me about kuala lumpur he yeah. says somebody <laughs> it's just oh just the, the 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 seeping vanity of somebody like that it's just oh it's delicious you forget <laughs> you forget that like what sean penn can do is channel that demon into some excellent on-screen demons you know <laughs> and uh he's always an irritatingly excellent actor quite a good director as well i like his movie into the wild but like 
yeah, he, you forget how charming he can be. He's so charming, even though he's completely incoherent. I just love it. <laughs> I'd, I'd watch a movie about him, you know. And the yeah. fact that the motorbike scene, he falls, <laughs> he falls off the motorbike and then manages to style it out, you know. It's just, <laughs> it's just excellent. Again, like, there isn't, you know, you sort of watch that scene. So it's like, is he going to die? Is it like something like that's going to happen? It's like, no, he gets a, he gets a round of applause <laughs> and walks uh-huh. it off. And then there's there's Tom Waits in the background as uh, a character called Rex Blau, uh, but apparently based on another Hollywoodite who I'd never heard of called Mark Robson. Uh, that is that is another tremendous nonsense performance. It's just <laughs> in the middle of the bar holding center stage, and then he's like, Armand, I need three wingback chairs from the bar. I need a bottle of Everclear. I need plenty of grease from the kitchen. I want you to meet me on the eighth hole by the sand trap. And it's just like, what the fuck does any of that mean? Yep. It's so good. So good. It's, you know, the, 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 the joy in things being meaningless (laughs) and the joy in nonsense. I mean, it's something I think PTA takes from uh, Robert Altman. Uh, You know, Robert Altman always had that great glory in, in a moment where, someone would start talking and they just wouldn't stop um, and it wouldn't be relevant to the plot. Um, but it would, <laughs> it would take you somewhere different, you know. Well, it's, it's like these people from Hollywood uh, are just, they're all reading lines, but they don't know what any of them mean. And so when they're taking out the context of the films and they're still parroting these lines, there's just this sequence of gibberish, but it sounds beautiful. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, doesn't uh, Alana say something at one point where she's like, I don't know what that means, but you, you still think I'm sexy, right? Or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I then like, what... I like the Lucille Ball stand in as well, just oh, yeah. <laughs> very early on getting hit in the head with a cushion. Screaming at uh, at Cooper, I enjoyed that as well. I think we have to mention Bradley Cooper as a <laughs> as a standout as John Peters, and probably a real man, uh, who I guess gave his permission to being depicted in this way, which is even more remarkable than the entire performance. It's very weird that some people in this movie are fictionalized. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's not weird. It makes sense. But like, some people are very loosely fictionalized. And then other people are just the people. I mean, that character played by Harriet Sampson Harris was is just it was just a, an agent. She's a real person. Hmm. Um, and this guy, uh, Bradley Cooper's character, also just apparently a real person who was just some crazy dude who dated Barbara Streisand. Which, yeah. <laughs> well, you see, I, I I I actually knew of this guy. I think maybe from a previous Crate and Crowbar podcast where somebody was talking about him as the um, the producer who uh, was in charge of the Superman license for a period of time. Uh, and was famous for wanting uh, Superman not to be able to fly, but then also to fight a giant spider at some point. <laughs> uh, and then went on to make uh, Wild Wild West, in which obviously the protagonists fight a giant spider. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's, that was kind of his vibe, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just what he, what he liked, as well as, you know, threatening people at gas stations uh, to, to set them on fire. I have a quote in front of me from Neil Gaiman, who called his screenplay for Sandman, not only the worst Sandman script I've ever seen, but quite easily <laughs> the worst script I've ever read, <laughs> which I quite like. Uh, but again, again, just like uh, a torrent of uh, incredibly vibrant, luscious nonsense from him, where he's he's talking. I've I've written some of this down. I've synopsized it a bit, but I think this gets to the kind of uh, the kind of rhythm of it, where he's talking to Gary. He says, "We speak this. We speak the same language. We're both from the streets." You need to get more vitamin D, cod liver oil. Do you know how much tail I get? All of it. 
It's all mine. I'm going to kill you and your family if you fuck up my house. (laughs) (laughs) And then just the entire... Like you said earlier, this this could have been a, a film in itself where they turn up, they wreck John Peter's house, then they're forced to give him a lift back to it, having attempted to escape. Then they ditch him at a gas station, then they wreck his car, then they realise they can't escape again because they've run out of gas themselves. It's just a wonderful escalating calamity that could have that could have been like a you know an hour and a half farce in itself, but yeah. it just. It's kind of a um, um, you know, American graffiti in the middle of the movie. It's uh, it's uh, it's fantastic, yeah. Um. And then there's there's uh, one last cameo. Well, actually, two last cameos. There's George DiCaprio, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's father. Weirdly, turns up looking fucking crazy. Um, <laughs> he only says one line. Yeah. But then there's also uh, I wanted to mention this Benny Safdie uh, as uh, uh, Joel Wax, who's the um, the would be mayor. Um, uh, who I who I know maybe less as an actor as uh, than he is uh, one half of the um, filmmaking duo, the Safdie brothers, who are behind Good Time and Uncut Gems. And how the fuck didn't they end up in our top fifty list, Jamie? Yes, I almost yeah. I almost put Good Time. In as uh, <laughs> as funny, I was watching uh, Adam Sandler's. It's worth watching. Uh, maybe we can pop it in the show notes. Uh, Adam Sandler's acceptance speech for the Independent uh, Choice Awards, whatever it's called. Where he says once he worked out that um, the Safdie brothers weren't a pair of homeless rabbis, he agreed to make a movie with them, and he cuts them in the audience looking like very much like a pair of homeless rabbis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, Good Time in particular, I think, is 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 fantastic. Um, Both films are like having heart attacks. I think. They really are. Uh, yeah, they really are. <laughs> we can maybe do a pod about them because they're. Uh, yeah. Both, uh, yeah. I'm not sure attacks. I could survive watching them a second time, but I, I, I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Um, no, but he's he's great. What a great character! It's funny because it was a kind of it's a weird like filmic standard. He reminds me, you know, you often in movies set in the seventies, they're often political campaigns. It's a weird like sort of motif. You see them again and again and again in you know a movie like Taxi Driver is one that springs to mind. Um, it just seems to be something people did back then, going and working a campaign office, and like I love the creepy guy who comes to you know watch from across the road. He's great. What a weirdo! <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know, yeah, I just think it's he, he's um, he's a really good actor. That guy, Benny Safdie, yeah. like he, and I love that scene uh, with him and his boyfriend. You know, again, it just a little play that suggests another play going on. You know, um, sort of round the corner, and I love that she, he walks her home. His boyfriend walks her home, and they share that really lovely hug. And that really lovely moment together yeah. where they both agree that all their all, boy, all boyfriends are <laughs> shit. Yeah, which is yeah. just great. I just loved it. Yeah, I, yeah. It's again, Joel Wax is actually a real person. That the the would be mayor, another one of the the, the pe- real people from history who turn up without any kind of uh, um, sh- shroud of uh, fictionalization. I don't know quite. I'd be really interested to know what, like, like you, what, which, how these decisions got made. Why, the, why some folks get named and others get fictionalized? I guess it's because they just wanted to do more with one particular character than history would allow, perhaps. Um, but like, it still raises the question: you know, Why was John Peters happy to be named as the guy who who had threatened to use a gas pump as a flamethrower and members of the public? You know, why was he okay with that? I mean, I guess he's just still really proud of sleeping with. Uh... <laughs> 
that with various women from the 70s with Barbara Streisand and Sharon Stone. So I yeah. guess he's just happy to have that advertised in perpetuity. Well, I'd like to talk a tiny bit about the 70s themselves, because this is, I mean, this is a film which isn't exactly biography. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson did live in, in, in his childhood in the San Fernando Valley, and a lot of this is about his kind of recollected detail of that place. Um, <clears throat> and apparently the, the name is a reference to a defunct record store chain that... Uh, for no particular reason, Paul Thomas Anderson finds you know super evocative of the era. Um, yeah, I have to say, it's not, it's not a title I particularly like. <laughs> no, again, yes, it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, no, and I think this is one of the kinds of things about the film which I find maybe uh, slightly less than perfect. I mean, so it's, it, as well as being based on uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's experiences, it's also very much based on apparently Gary Getzman who was a child actor uh, and, and sometimes waterbed salesman uh, <laughs> who, who uh, go, uh, went on to co-found Tom Hanks's production company. Um, so a lot of the details are drawn from his experiences. Like he was a kid on the Lucille Ball show, for example, and he did deliver a waterbed to John Peace's house. I don't know how it went, but that happened. <laughs> but like, it feels a little bit like Mank to me um, uh, uh, the, uh, in that, uh, the film Mank, I mean, uh, in that, Pretty much all of the references to, to, to Hollywood lunatics in the 1970s are just lost on me. Uh, and I wonder how the film would land if I shared that knowledge and, and affection. Um, having said that, I think it's like much more successful in some ways than Mank at that stuff because it makes it much more accessible. I feel like Mank relied quite a lot on your knowledge and on the pre-existing adulation of the era and setting. And I feel like it's less key here because those cameos are just so bizarre and lurid that they kind of have a freewheeling absurdity, which is enjoyable in its own right. I mean, how, how do you feel about it? I don't know. It's, it's funny because I obviously didn't grow up in, in uh, 1970s Los Angeles, but I did grow up with a dad who worked in show business and had a few kind of famous friends, you know, who would occasionally pop in and out of our lives. And so for me, actually, the kind of Cooper's attitude to it all, which is kind of, you know, sort of wanting to be involved in it, sort of eager to please, but kind of you know, fighting between the aspect of himself, which was a star, and the fighting, you know, the aspect of him, that, which is starry, and the aspect of him that's all too human. I found that stuff really kind of fun. And the period setting kind of, I don't know, I, I enjoyed the obscurity of the references for those reasons, because to me, it seemed just very true. <laughs> a right. sort of place where he was coming from there. Um, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess it made it feel authentic to me. I love the soundtrack of the movie. Like there's so many movies from the seventies, you know, seventies set movies, which have the kind of similar soundtracks. And aside from life on Mars, which I'm just sick of now, um, I think generally it's a really good soundtrack of, of kind of stuff you haven't heard before. I love the music that plays over the closing credits, particularly. Um, so for me, the period stuff and I, the obscurity of the references and stuff like that, they just kind of work for me because, I don't know, they just, they give it an air of mystery that it wouldn't necessarily have if it was if it was less specific. I mean, I don't know where the San Fernando Valley is. I don't know the areas it covers. I know it's, you know, greater Los Angeles. Hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've been to LA a couple of times, but I've only gone to the bits you go to, you know, when you're, when you're visiting. So it's like, it's a completely obscure place to me 
Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I only know it really from Chinatown as the place that has all the water stolen from it. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I don't really get that much of a sense of place from it. Like, I mean, I under, I, I get a, a, a vibe from it, but I don't get a sense of geography, uh, which, uh, which I suppose is kind of. I mean, that's LA for you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because everybody uses cars to get everywhere, so it doesn't really have a kind of physical structure to it that matters in a way. But at the same time, it, like the film requires and relies on people encountering each other by chance a lot. Like there are a lot, lot of times people are strolling past each other and bump into each other. And like maybe that's like how things were and there were just a small number of hubs that invited that sort of serendipity, but it doesn't really intrinsically make sense for me and I'm not sure the film quite convinces me that it should do. Um, no, it's, I mean, it's practically magical realism, the way that hmm. some of those things happen, you know, people just wandering into each other's lives, in this, supposedly in this enormous city. I do think it speaks to, you know, I think this is PTO trying to make a movie about his own childhood. I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that's what it's about. And I think he must have lived a very weird life. You know, his his family was in show business. His dad was a... Uh, one of those weird horror hosts they have on American TV over there. Um, you know, he grew up in in this kind of world and has made a couple of movies about it now. And I think, oof, I don't know. It's like you walk a line, don't you? It's like, I mean, you don't, you never want to be self indulgent, you know. But again, this is a movie that is definitely self indulgent, and it's it's a sort of real tightrope you know, act where you're trying to make it self-indulgent enough so it feels specific and human, but not so much where you're just like, all right, well, this is just onanistic now. You know, you're just kind yeah. of, you know, doing this for the sake of doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly very personal. I, I do think it is successfully communicative uh, about his passions in a way which sometimes passion projects aren't, you know. I feel like, I mean, he's talked about it as an opportunity to recreate some aspects of his childhood for his own kids so they could see what it was like when he was growing up in the same part of the world that they are now growing up in. And they're part of the film as well. And I, whilst that is obviously quite an insular sort of goal, I think it does manage to kind of successfully communicate some some of that stuff to an audience, which is naive. But I, I was wondering how you felt about the um, the the ecosystem of child actors uh, as somebody who's worked uh, with people on the cusp of adulthood. Uh, I don't really understand like a lot of what's at stake uh, during these uh, these these casting calls where you know Gary will walk into a room and he'll say, my face is a pimply mess and I don't know what to do. And then somebody shakes his hand and says, you still got it. Whilst, you know, Mayor Rudolph looks meaningfully at somebody and nods. I'm like, what, but what does it mean? Was it good? <laughs> what are the standards at the time? Yeah, it's it's a funny one that because like, I or my feeling is, I mean, <laughs> I got a lot of, I did get some anxiety, but it's not the anxiety the film really necessarily means, which is just like the lack of supervision <laughs> and the lack, <laughs> the lack of advocacy for these for these young people. I mean, like even when we were doing Skins, I, you know, I was, you know, I wasn't really involved in the casting or dealt with the actors much at all. But in retrospect, there was far too little, you know, looking after of these people, and even watching. And that has left me now with like, if I ever work with young actors ever again, I'm going to make sure that they are like properly protected and advocated for, because I mm. think, you know, even watching a movie like this, which is full of young people, even though lots of them are, you know, Steven Spielberg's daughters in it and all PTA's kids are in it as well. I'm always just kind of like, 
oh, I hope you guys are being protected. I hope you're being looked after. Because, <laughs> you know, Hollywood people are always putting their kids in movies. And it's, I don't know, it makes me feel a bit uncomfortable, even though this is a movie you know, basically built of that uh, attitude. Um, it, it's funny. I think it draws it very well. But I also think it's it's kind of, I don't know, the Hollywood's treatment of children and its treatment of, you know, child actors is always going to be problematic because you know it often doesn't turn out well for these guys yeah i'd say i, I did read a, um an interview where somebody uh puts it to paul thomas anderson the difference of working with you know uh actors of the caliber of daniel day lewis and working with first-time actors and uh you know it, it, at least by his own account uh, paul thomas anderson comes across as very kind of conscientious and protective of of the young cast where he's saying well you know one of the main differences uh, amongst many differences, but older actors know how to pace themselves. They know how to take care of themselves. And, you know, uh, with young actors, you need to make sure they don't burn out. You need to make sure that they're eating at the right times, you know, yeah. got to bring a juice box to the set. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, uh, th- having read around the film has actually made me feel a kind of a lot more warmly uh, about the whole an endeavor of it uh, in a weird way. Yes. And I, I like to, assume about PTA even without necessarily knowing it that he has such an all-encompassing vision for his movies that he considers that and rolls with that if you ever watch the um uh it's probably around on YouTube but there's a making of Magnolia movie which was on DVD for Magnolia I think it's called That Moment it's one of the best like examinations of creative process I've ever seen and you can see PTA and that, even though and by PTA I obviously mean the Parent Teachers Association, but you can see that PTA and <laughs> that is um uh constantly engaged in the artistic process as a communication between himself and his collaborators and the actors. You see him, you know, changing the script based on what the actors are sort of finding in the scene and finding in that moment, which is where the thing gets its name from. And I always think like you know, the, the prob- you run into problems with these things, and this is from my very limited experience, really, when you rest on your laurels and you think that everything's going to be fine and everything's, you know, you just assume the best and therefore don't expect the worst. And I assume that he, what he does is, would be someone who's always on the lookout for those things because he does seem like a pretty human guy, really. I'd like to know when he's going to write a part for his wife because <laughs> she's an amazing actress. She really sells. She really sells that one moment she has in this movie where she just looks skeptical about what Cooper's just done, um, and and she's she's popped up in a couple of his movies now, always mm. in bit parts. And it's like she's an amazing actor. Write her a wicked part, you know, not yeah. enough parts for you know women her age in Hollywood. You know, give her give her something to do. Yeah, one of my uh, f- favorite things about the film. Uh... Is it bridesmaids? I think it's bridesmaids. Yes. Where she uh, she uh, massively shits itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, just a terrific performance. It's an excellent moment where she's she's wearing a wedding dress, isn't she? And her, her just her she just sort of folds herself down in the road. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so good. So I, I thought we'd talk about one of the the. The, the things I'm less keen on about the film, just to end, you know, to end on a downbeat note. Uh, yeah, we should. <laughs> um, I'm actually not that into the way that this is sort of playfully shot at times. Like, I feel like a lot of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's films, the camera doesn't really, I mean, the image is always beautiful, but the camera doesn't necessarily remind you that it's there. Like, uh, he almost 
like a cliche for his films is having long shots where the camera itself moves to avoid cutting. But here there's a lot of conversations where the shots cut very abruptly back and forth, looking directly into the faces of the two uh, conversationalists. And it's kind of snappy and fun, but also feels just a little bit forced. And there's another scene where there's a sort of another back and forth where the camera literally pivots between the two participants in a lurching way. And like, yeah, called I felt like the whip, framing whip of the framing, they call it whip panning. Whip panning. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah, I felt like it was trying a bit hard to promote a sense of emotion and rhythm. I actually found it quite distracting and artificial. But I think I've just been Wes Addisoned out by these sorts of affectations, you know. Like, I think back way back when it was quite lively and fun. You know, Ed, Edgar Wright was bringing this sort of uh, sensibility too, where the cutting and the framing of the thing could be its own kind of meta joke on the on the conventions of cutting and framing. But I think as, as time has gone on, the the more I want the Wes Andersons of this move just of this world to move past it, because I I find it, especially his films, to be more about the style and activity of filmmaking than they are about the actual subject matter of the films. Um, you know, which seems to be just a, an excuse to put lots of people in wigs, as far as I can tell. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would agree, except I think the the way the film looks, uh, uh, by which I mean like the the grain and the, the film stock mm. that it's done on, which is the sort of forty millimeter vibe, which I assume they and using lots of sort of vintage filters from the seventies. Um, I think that 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 sort of makes that less of an issue for me personally because even though there are some flashy things going on here the the level of um kind of fidelity and i don't necessarily mean the high level of fidelity just whatever the level of fidelity is here <laughs> um really works for me and it and it gives it uh it gives it an earthiness which i think counters some of the um artificiality of of, of some of those uh, bolder uh, camera moves um there's some lovely uh, single takes in this, particularly that weird kid fair thing, starting off with uh, uh, John C. Riley just as uh, Herman Munster. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, generally, I think it's it's certainly more it's certainly more mannered than 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 any movie he's made since Punch Drunk Love. I mean, he's always hmm. made bold bold choices as a director, but to be kind of playful is not normally in his in his kind of toolbox. Um, so it is jarring. I did notice those moments, particularly when he's whizzing his camera backwards and forwards in, in conversations between characters. But for me, yeah, it, it felt okay just about because the film stock itself felt a little bit more organic than, than I'm used to seeing. And that means those that means those blurs are a bit more tactile than they normally are. You know, mm. when you're shooting on digital, those things can be a little muddier. Whereas here it was kind of, you could see the kind of streakiness of it, which is a technical term I learned. <laughs> at the University of Television. <laughs> I mean, the texture of it feels nice to me, but I was watching it on a laptop screen, so maybe not as uh, PTA would have intended or desired. <laughs> I love the people who do things like um, watch Twin Peaks. I saw one uh, someone watched it on a uh, pregnancy test. <laughs> <laughs> Just to annoy David Lynch as much as possible. There's this whole culture of trying to watch movies on stupidly small screens. <laughs> pregnancy test is pretty good. I can also recommend a clip on YouTube that can go in the show notes, maybe, which is um, PTA interviewing um, Robert Downey Sr. So this is Robert Downey Jr.'s dad who, who died very recently, um, uh, who was PTA's mentor in the 70s and was a very good filmmaker in his own right. There's a movie you can watch called Putney Swope, which is 
great. Um, and a very kind of early example of proper indie filmmaking. Uh, but <laughs> there's this great scene where uh, Robert Downey Sr. is telling an anecdote about a, a scene where um, a woman was sort of cavorting with a monkey uh, uh, in this sort of artsy-fartsy scene. And he was trying to get the monkey's trainer to get the monkey to be more um, uh, more tactile with the woman. And eventually he's just telling this story to PTA, who's looking increasingly horrified. And then eventually he goes like, and the man turned to me and he said, you want the monkey to fuck her? That's <laughs> 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 just a really excellent bit of weirdness. <laughs> PTA just sitting there going like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Well, this, this is clearly the material he's drawing from for, for this film, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Yeah, I think it very much is that. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson has uh, said that he has absolutely no particular ambition to uh, get into television. Uh, in fact, uh, he was, <clears throat> he, he's saying that, you know, he, uh, uh, having a wealth of material, a surplus of material is not always a good thing. And the temptation to spin that out into a TV series rather than a film wouldn't necessarily make his work better. Um, but um, with that in mind, I guess uh, I hope for the survival of <laughs> of these sorts of films. Like he seems to have carved out a niche for himself where he's able to make pretty solid mid-budget uh, artistic films um, with a, a great amount of creative freedom. Well, he's one of those. He's one of the very few people I think who has, you know, the the backing of of sort of um, like oh, yeah. working with people like Annapurna and companies like that, where you know there's not many people who have his ability. It's like kind of him and the Coens and a couple of others who can spend this much on a movie and get to do basically whatever they like, you know. Um, but it is a, you know, it, it's a good investment for those guys because you know it, it does always pay off, and I'm very glad these films still exist despite everything. Should it have won something, even you know, even though we haven't seen the other films, <laughs> I haven't seen any of the other films, so it's so hard to pronounce. Um, I'm just having a look. Was it okay? What was it? The uh, would it have won uh, based on the films that came out last year that you did see? Based on the movies that came out last year that I did see. So yeah. let's see. Um, out of uh, Don't Look Up, Dune, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley. So those are the ones I've seen. I would say yes, it's the best movie out of those. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, it's not exactly. I mean, I think June. I, I think I like Don't Look Up. I saw on Twitter Matthew Castle saying he hated it, but I, I rather liked. It. Mm, I couldn't. I couldn't get through it. I couldn't stand it actually. Yeah, I, I, I hear that a lot. I thought it was quite amiable in its in its own weird way. But yeah, lots of people seem to really, really, uh, you know rub up against that one well i think it's because the the anxieties that it's spoofing are just so palpably real and present in my everyday life i don't really need to be told about them in a satirical way i think <laughs> you know yeah that makes sense <laughs> I, I, I have a you know a permanent sense of terror i don't i don't need a, a funny film to point out these things to me in a in an arch way but you know um I, it probably had other merits that i was <laughs> i was ignoring because of my own anxieties but uh yeah. It seems fairly likely that Drive My Car is a better movie than Licorice Pizza, though, doesn't it? I mean, have you seen that one yet? Everyone says it's incredible. Uh, not quite yet, no. It's it's about three hours long, so I've been waiting for a, uh, a you know, extended Waiting for an impossible time, block of time in this day <laughs> exactly. Waiting for a vortex to open up where you can pop in, <laughs> and no time has passed at all when you come back. <laughs> That's the end of this 
lock-in. Uh, you've been released back into the wilds. Don't cause any trouble on the streets. Behave yourselves. Get into bed. <laughs> uh, if you'd uh, like to tweet us, you can tweet us for some reason at Crate and Crowbar. Uh, you can listen to these recordings, which are uploaded as videos to YouTube. Uh, you can find that and other nonsense by us at youtube.com slash crate and crowbar. Thanks as always to our Patreon backers. They don't get charged for these lock-ins. They get charged only for the fortnightly games pod. But you can nonetheless back us too at patreon.com slash crate and crowbar. Or you can simply join the lovely Discord community, the link for which is on our website, crate and crowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Jamie Britton. Thanks for listening, listening everybody. everybody.